Look for advice with the peers that are doing what you want to do. If you want to build a SaaS business, look at successful SaaS founders that have a business that like you want to have it a couple of years from now and listen to what they have to say. Don't look at the people like, who have built this for the last 20 years and now have a like a 20, 30, 40 million dollar a month business. Look at the people who have one that has like $20,000 a month and how they got there and what they have to teach you. Like always look slightly ahead of you. What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 142 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I am very excited to be joined by Arvid Kahl, the author of Zero to Sold and The Embedded Entrepreneur. Arvid is also the creator of the Find Your Following course, which teaches people how to build an authentic Twitter audience, something that Arvid himself knows a thing or two about after growing his own following on Twitter to over 50,000 subscribers. During this interview, Arvid and I discussed a wide range of topics from how immigration to the U.S. and Canada today differs from immigration before the information economy, how World of Warcraft caused Arvid to drop out of college, if you should trust your gut, and yes, we of course discussed why and how to grow a Twitter audience. And so much, so much more, you guys. We covered a ton of different topics and had a very fun conversation that I know you guys are going to absolutely love. But before we jump into the interview, make sure that you subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Remote Insider. Every Monday morning, I send out a brief but informative email bringing you the most interesting developments and discussions around topics like the digital nomad lifestyle, remote-first companies, the future of work, lifestyle business, and global citizenship. Remote Insider is the easiest way to stay informed and never get left out. You guys, you can subscribe at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider. Finally, I would love to hear what you think about this podcast. I've made it very easy to leave a review. All you have to do is just head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that podcasting apps look at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Arvid Kahl. All right, Arvid, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hello, hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great. I'm living the life. I can tell you that. It's uh, really nice. How are you? I am. I'm doing. I'm very excited to have you on here. Like we were talking about before we hit record. I'm uh, uh, very excited. I've uh, I've interacted with your stuff a lot. I've heard about you for a really long time. And I was even thinking about this like before. You know, we even started recording. I'm like, you know, trying to think about like what to name this podcast. And I was like. 
we could just name it two guys with funky names talking about business and it would be like a pretty <laughs> accurate description. But yeah, uh, if bet. people didn't know from the name, you uh, were first born in, in Germany. Uh, you grew up in That's Germany right. and then now you live in Canada and we're talking before we hit record about that kind of shift. And, and I'm curious as an immigrant myself, why did you decide to, to move from Europe, from Germany to Canada and mm. Like, how did your life change? Like, wh- like, what really drove that decision? So there's, there's like an undercurrent. I've, I've always been interested in the North American culture as a German. Like, I grew up like reading a lot of books uh, from U.S. authors translated into German because when I was a kid, I couldn't speak English. Well, just yet. It took a while for that to happen. And then later I got into gaming and I got into software engineering and English being the main language of most of these both products and communities. You know, you kind of try to get closer to the culture that that creates these things. So I've always been exposed to and a fan of both the U.S. and, and Canadian culture, just in, in many ways. Right? I've always been interested in that. Um, then I became a software engineer at some point, and I I actually went to San Francisco for a while to work for a Silicon Valley VC funded business. Both I was there a little bit, and I, I worked remotely from Germany as well. So that was interesting. That was in 2012 or something. I don't I don't really know. I forgot. But it's been it, it's it's a while ago. It's oh god, it's a decade ago, huh? Wow. <laughs> and it, it, that that was that was awesome because you know like as somebody who honestly bluntly I I love barbecue and I love burgers and that's something you at least at that time you didn't get much of in Germany at least not the same way you would get in the states it may be normal if you're if you're from the states that that may feel like the most boring tedious thing to talk about but honestly for somebody who doesn't have that in their culinary culture that is the the epitome of of wonder I like, honestly it was it was great so I've always been a little drawn to th- this particular continent in, in that way and then uh, I still lived in Berlin for most of my life. We we only moved to Canada in August last year, so that that is uh, oh, wow, okay. six ish years of of my life I, I spent in Germany, uh, as a you know as a German, and um, my girlfriend is Canadian. So I, I met Danielle in in twenty must have been fourteen or something. It's been like seven ish years ago, and um, she she's an opera singer, and she went to Germany to. Uh, get ahead in the opera scene and she, she did that she she worked in berlin and we met and then at some point she, she stayed at home because she has had a leg injury like little things happened in our lives that kind of drew us into actually building a business right she mm-hmm. she couldn't leave home she had to find a job she could do online she did it online she taught kids in china how to teach or she taught them how to speak english as a second mm-hmm. language and I was sitting there watching her do her work, and there, there were things we could optimize. We built a little SaaS business around that, me as the person that was capable of building the actual technology, and she as the person that had the idea and the vision, built a business. Within two years, it got to $55,000 of monthly recurring revenue. We sold it, and then we essentially were at a point where we were financially secure. And then we decided, so what are we going to do with our lives now? Like, what are we going to do? And it, it was quickly quite apparent that money is by far not everything. It's really nice to have, but it doesn't have any meaning. It comes without meaning, like it has no meaning whatsoever. And we thought, okay, let's get, connect back with family. Because I have a very small family in Germany, mm-hmm. but Danielle has a gigantic family here in Canada. So we made the plan to move our lives and our business and our everything over to Canada, which was no problem at all because we've always been remote workers in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like we always build things 
in a way that we could carry our business, our livelihood with us in our laptop, in our backpack if we needed to. And that made the transition from Germany to Canada, one of just adjusting to the time zone. That was all we had to do because right? you have these six hours in between and you get slightly jet lagged. So that was kind of the problem, really, because I mean, anything else we uh, we could do from either place. And we had done this the years before where we just went here for Christmas or for the summer holiday or something. We would take our SaaS business with us and operate it from here, which was like the, the ultimate freedom to have what you're doing and, and be able to carry it with you on a vacation, which kind of is not a vacation if you think about it. It's just a workation, but you know, it's it's still it's the ultimate freedom that you didn't have to. We, we didn't uh, ever have to ask anybody if we could leave or not because we owned the business and we could take it with us. It was it was wonderful. So the motivation, in a sense, was a family one, but it was also one of well, where do we want to live? Let's take the place that we actually have the most potential family interactions in, and that was Canada, and that's where I'm right now. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, for example, when I immigrated to the U.S. with my parents, it was in 2004. So it was before the Internet had really quite become what it is today. You know, remote work wasn't really a thing then or like it was. I know of some people who were like already, quote unquote, digital nomads. And I'm like, yeah, but you were kind of yeah. like a freak at this point. You know, what I mean? like, there was, it was like, like 10 people. It was 10 people. Yeah, worldwide exactly. at that point, yeah. right? And the thing is that this is exactly why remote work, I think, is so empowering is that, like you said, like I, I think there's another variable there because we moved from Eastern Europe, from Bulgaria to America. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a culture shock. Germany oh, yeah. is quite a bit closer culture wise to yeah. the US, to Canada. So there's less culture shock in that way. But it's so amazing that you were able to, like you said, just really the biggest thing you felt like was adjusting to the time zone change because mm-hmm. you, you had your work, right? Like you had yeah. your, your culture, your work, and you just kind of just moved places. And that's so different from when you think yeah. about it 20 years ago, almost 18 years ago. Uh, Things have changed so much in 18 years isn't, you know, that huge amount of time. Um, but you you touched on something here that I want to come back to because I heard this about you. You mentioned gaming and I heard this about you and I correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think we might have something in common. So I dropped out of college uh, to pursue entrepreneurship, to go work at a startup and mm-hmm. I heard that you didn't drop out just once. You dropped out twice because you were so into World of Warcraft. Is this correct? That's right. And how does yeah, somebody drop right. out twice? Isn't that – I always thought that it's like you drop out once and like you're kind of done. But tell me how, how did this happen and how do you go from a college dropout who was so into World of Warcraft that you quit school to then starting such a big business like the one that you had? Mm. Well, yeah, it's um... – it's a if, if you look back at it and all makes sense it certainly does not make much sense like in the in the middle of actually doing it right it's a kind of you can only retroactively connect the dots but when you're on the dot like going from one dot to another it doesn't uh, make much sense to you and it definitely doesn't make much sense to your family so i had a lot of <laughs> pressure from like particularly my grandparents who were very traditionalist in a, in a in the career sense I've, their whole life was one career at one kind of business so that's kind of their their perspective that they wanted to put on to me is like find the thing and stay with it like from the start right find the right thing to study see it through get your degree study more get a second degree go into a business 
worked there for 30 years, get a golden watch, and then retire. That's kind of what they mm-hmm. knew, what they did. And it th- made a lot of sense for them, never made much sense for me, particularly because I, I grew up in a world where it kind of started, to, the writing was on the wall for um, careers as they had been, not they, they wouldn't exist anymore in the future. Like Career change is a regular thing now, and people look at you weird if you don't have experience in multiple businesses at a certain point in your life, right? So I, I kind of understood quite early, particularly because I was always technology adjacent, that um, I would I could do whatever I wanted to for whomever I wanted to do it, and I would probably be able to make a career out of it. And I knew this even while I was studying. The first thing I studied was computer science, where I got like a little little education because back in 2004 like the year where i started that that's i think when world of warcraft was initially released so it coincided wonderfully with my willingness to learn i just kind of stopped learning the computer science stuff and started learning how to um level up my my undead rogue which was fun (laughs) but you know one thing that i that i always try to do was to to still learn for the sake of understanding things I never wanted to get a degree. That was something that somebody else mm-hmm. asked me to do. I never wanted like a diploma or like a bachelor's or a master's. That was never that interesting to me because I knew from, like you said, seeing around me people do things that were rare but visionary in the kind of freedom that they had. It wasn't yet the time of the indie hacker, right? 2004, mm-hmm. 2003. You st- like, if you wanted to be a software engineer, you still wanted to go with a bigger business. You wanted to go to Google, which was new back then, or Microsoft, which ha- which had been around for ten years. You know, like it was kind of uh, it, it was a time where you you saw certain things happening for some select people that you also wanted because they made a made a living for themselves just selling their own software and they, they had their own little one person business and and sold like shareware CDs and stuff like that you know it was it was a different time oh why we could, we could take a whole show just on the, like what what happened 10 years ago and and uh in the whole industry because that's probably very interesting but I let, let me get back to to your actual question so I, I studied a little bit on the side and played games on the other half of my life and it was at that time where I started to learn how to speak English because as a German, our English as a second language education is really not that good in many ways. Like you're not really exposed to speakers of that language. You're only exposed to teachers who think they know how to speak English. So that was, you know, that was one of these things where we, we really wouldn't, weren't exposed too well to other people and had to learn how to communicate. But if you have to coordinate 40 people to kill a dragon... And 40 people mm. come, you know, Europe in particular, come from like 15 different countries and they all speak English with a weird accent. You you certainly learn how to express yourself clearly and quickly because you have to kill the dragon and the dragon breathes fire and that's a problem. Right? You, you learn how to, how to do this um, actual communication with people. And that's what the game taught me. The the game mm. and that that made it so interesting because I built friendships with people and I built some some kind of reputation as a good player with on my server within the guilds and stuff. It was it was just a, a good time. So that kind of made me more interested in both um, World of Warcraft as a game and as an extension developer. I coded some stuff for the game, so I never stopped coding. And then at some point, I just dropped out of the my, my studies because you had to had a, cer- a certain amount of credits before they kicked you out. And before they kicked me out. I took myself out. And then I thought, hmm, what am I going to do now? I have no degree. I'm working. I was working at the time for like an, an agency in Berlin. So I was making some some good money developing on the side. And um, in Germany, you get, have a pretty strong social safety net. So if, even if you don't right. work, you get paid for government to study. So I, I, I hopped towns 
I went went to a different city, lived in a different city, studied something completely different because I thought, hey, let's try something else. Let's learn something about people. So I studied political science and philosophy, which was to me the complete opposite of what computer science is. Right? Computer science is understanding machines, and philosophy Critical is understanding thinking and yeah. Yeah, it's people and how people interact, how societies work, how systems work, which in a, in a way is not too far from computer systems. It's just different components and, and different dynamics. So I studied that for a couple of years and started gaming again. So that was a problem. But funny enough that the, the second time around, I didn't leave the university for the game. I left it because somebody in San Francisco had found my GitHub profile and saw the technology that I was using was the same technology that their nascent just series A funded startup was using and asked me via Twitter DM, which I still have, if I needed a gig, if I wanted to come to San Francisco to make some money. Mm. Who's going to say no as a, like, as a software engineer in the making? Who's going to say no to a just funded, VC funded, cool like software business in, in the Valley? Like Nobody's going to say no to that. And I certainly didn't. So I actually quit quit my university because I had got a job in, in Silicon Valley. And it was funny because the first two weeks I was there, I think I learned more about programming and systems thinking than I ever did in the many years of computer science education that I had before. But that's just the reality of business, right? You need to teach the people that you want to work for your business to be good at what you need them to be good at. So you get the essentials and you quickly... Um, disseminate that kind of knowledge. But that's that's why I quit my university. And I, I still am looking back fondly at those days because I learned a lot of stuff, met a lot of interesting people and did a lot of other things too. And in retrospect, all of this, the the philosophy stuff, that that influences my writing now because I can mm. do critical, I, I, I can do critical analysis. I have like multi-perspective thinking that was all kind of educated into me. And I can use it to write about startups and building a public and audience building and all these things. So in retrospect, it all makes sense for many people other than myself, because I trust that whatever I do is going to lead me to something bigger. That's just my natural disposition. I'm very optimistic in terms of, ah, oh, this will fit in somewhere in the future. So I always knew it's going to be great. People around me now understand that it was, but it, it took me some, I'm just going to do it anyway, kind of level ignorance towards their position to actually do it. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how my education happened. One thing that's really interesting to me from kind of like that story is something that I resonate with a lot, which is that when I dropped out of school, I, the reason why I did it was because something didn't quite feel right. Like I was studying to get this degree but for some reason, I was like, where is this leading? Like there was some kind of almost like smell or sense in the air of, I was like, the, like things don't quite add up with what I believe the world will be, right? And so I dropped out and everyone in my, you know, surrounding, because I was like a good student, you know, straight A student or relatively straight A student. Like I, I was on like a good trajectory, so to say, quote unquote. And I dropped out of school and everyone freaked out. Like I had tons of, you know, adults in my life who were like, just get the degree, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. And there was something in my gut that was saying, I don't think it's worth it. Like, I don't think it's going to be worth what it is. And it kind of sounds like you had a similar sense. Like you said, you were feeling that, you know, the career wasn't going to be in the future what it was for like your parents, grandparents, what like, you know, the world was used to. And I'm curious about this trusting your gut thing, because how do you know when to trust your gut? 
because sometimes, you know, everything in the world can be telling you one thing and like all, you know, the information can be pointing you in one direction, but like sometimes your gut says no, right? And sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. And I feel like that's a very important thing as an entrepreneur to actually understand is like, when do you listen to your gut? When do you not? Like, so how do you, like, how do you think about that? Like, how have you developed this sort of, this sort of like, how have you crossed this language barrier, quote unquote, with, with your gut in this way? Oh, that's, um, that's an interesting perspective on this because I feel I, I trust every single gut decision that I make and most of them are right. But <laughs> have you always been this way? So have you always yeah. trusted your gut? I, 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 no, I don't think so. Um, like, uh, funny, but because I was, I was thinking a lot about this recently, particularly in terms of the educational upbringing that, that I was in, right? But like we, a lot of people nowadays talk about, um, homeschooling their kids because they don't trust mm-hmm. the educational systems anymore. They, they talk about unschooling the idea yeah. of removing the idea of curriculum, and doing project-based learning and doing uh, interest-based learning and just fig- letting the kids figure out how, how to approach the topics that they need to approach. Like not, not doing like stuffing the knowledge in them, but providing them, surrounding them with the knowledge for them to just wander into at some point and have a kindled interest in them that actually makes them want to learn it. Not be forced to learn it, but I think that's what unschooling is. And I love that. And in, in retrospect, when I look at my own life and my own educational upbringing, everything that I was taught was about compliance. It was about mm-hmm. um, delivering finished products. It was about not plagiarizing not to be inspired not to copy it was about um at the same point at the same time that i was told not to plagiarize i i was supposed to regurgitate knowledge verbatim which is very contradictory and and the whole educational upbringing that i had is very contradictory and it was very um in in retrospect i I feel it it, it was it's very destructive to teach kids to be compliant and uh, then throw them into a world where they expected to be creative so very, very strong uh, opposites on a highly polarized kind of continuum. But I, I understood at some point, looking at the world that I was in, that I had the choice to negate this learning that was instilled me in, into me, right? That, that somebody taught me. They taught it. It's, it's not innate knowledge. It's not like when, when babies start swimming or like or when dogs start swimming automatically when they hear water. That's innate knowledge, right? They're not conditioned to do this. But as, as a human being, as an adult human being, I have the capacity to distinguish innate knowledge from like, it's like in, in law, there's natural law and there's positive law. So like there, there's gravity mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there is a, a constitution. And the constitution is written by people. Gravity is gravity, right? There is no, I cannot impact gravity other than um, inventing an anti-gravity device. Now that would be cool. But (laughs) again, that's physics and that's not the problem. But a a positive law or positive things are things that people want to be and they make them happen. But it's like money. We need to believe in it for it to work. And I decided not to believe in that anymore. And not in money. I still believe in money. But I I, I don't believe in needing to be compliant to be a good creative worker. And I believe I start, stop believing in having to listen to other people to make my own experiences. And I, I think that's that's kind of where this connects to what you were asking. Because my my gut feeling is is I always go with my guts. Because if I don't, like, why do I have this voice inside me? 
And it's kind of th- this voice is inside me. So something part of me, or at least part of like the, the me's, the many me's, the ego and, mm. you know, the subconscious and, and whatnot. But um, out, outside stuff, anything that comes from an external source, be it a teacher or a business or a government, there is, for the lack of a less charged word, an agenda. And and that can be for the best. It can be to protect me. It can be to support me. My parents, for example, their agenda, my grandparents, was to help me in life, to prevent me from making big mistakes, uh, to make me continue studying, right? That is a very like um, positive, very supportive, supposedly supportive agenda. But it's it's not my path necessarily. So I was able to see, okay, they do this out of love, but it's also something they do for themselves. So it's not mm. genuinely selfless. Nothing really ever is. And that allowed me to say, okay, if I want to, if I, if other people aren't completely selfless towards me, I don't have to be completely selfless towards them. I can be a little bit selfish, make my own choices and learn from them. And I, I trust my gut in all the business decisions that I make. And some of them go horribly wrong. Like I released an NFT collection a couple months ago. It was hilarious. It was the worst thing I ever did. Like I, I, I did some stuff. I mean, the, the artwork that I made, I like, I wrote, passages from my book out by hand and digitized it. That was fun. And these things still exist. And it was an enjoyable art project, but wanting to make money from NFTs because everybody else makes money from NFTs. That was the most stupid and most selfish thing I ever did. And I admit that because once I thought about it, I was like, this is not good. This is not a helpful project. This is a way for me to milk interest in my brand. I shouldn't do this. And then I, I just recently wrote about it because it was cathartic for me to actually admit that this was a selfish act. But in in being able to talk about this freely, in being able to make mistakes like this, owning up to them, and then using it to still teach something to other people, this is a net benefit for everybody. And I love mm-hmm. that, right? I love that I can make mistakes and still leverage them to give something meaningful to other people. I, I lost money on this, but I didn't lose brand or reputation or anything on that. I gained because it allowed me to be honest and that furthers my brand as somebody that people can trust because I want people to trust what I'm saying when I talk about businesses or audience building, whatnot, because the more people I can reach, the more people can reach other people, help other people, right? I want this to be like a win-win, expansive, supportive, um, tide raising all the boats situation. So I trust my gut and I'm, I'm perfectly fine with failing. It's also something that I had to learn because in school I was taught if you don't give the correct response, if you don't adhere to um, the correct font size and the correct spacing, then whatever you write is wrong. Something that just boils my blood. The fact that people can tell me I didn't even read your essay because the line spacing was off. Like that is the worst thing you can do to a creative mind. And I consider myself to have been a creative kid and school and before and after hope thankfully they couldn't uh, get that out of me but i i remember these moments and i remember these moments of oppression right because this is not this is not being a good teacher and correcting a student this is i'm sorry for this becoming a personal anecdote but this is um taking somebody's ambition and and like the tall poppy story where you cut off the tall poppies in the field right mm-hmm. just cutting them back to size and that's not okay. And I don't want to do this with other people. I don't want it done to me. So I generally am a very kind and forgiving person in many ways because I love failing because failing teaches me often more than success. And I love other people to fail so I can learn from them. 
obviously I want them to succeed more than they fail, but little failures add up to one big success in the end. It's kind of my perspective. Mm. So that's how I, it's kind of how I've overcome this. So I'm interested because this, this isn't necessarily like, I'm not pushing back on this because I agree with it, with everything that you're saying. But the reason why I ask that is like when I work with students or, you know, clients or whatever, and especially people who are just getting started, what I tell them is to not always trust their gut because the way Mm -hmm. I think about this is like the gut is a muscle, right? So when you're just getting started, you haven't trained your gut yet. But when you've been in a certain industry for years and years and years, and you kind of have like the lay of the land, you kind of understand a lot about the industry, your gut, that muscle can sometimes make these connections that your brain can't quite make. And so this is like when I'm working with like sometimes with students, I'd say like not necessarily like only listen to whatever a mentor or a book is saying to you, but weigh that more heavily because if you're just getting started in in a space like this, your gut hasn't quite been trained yet as yeah. a muscle. What do you think about that as a as a good viewpoint? I I really like th- this approach because it obviously like nobody ever knows everything. Right. Like Mm -hmm. even as an experienced founder, as an experienced writer, I consider myself one to be, I still I I know how much I don't know. Right. That's the whole thing. Like the more you know, that the more you know how little you know. That's where imposter syndrome comes from, right? Is like knowing that there's so much to know that you know that you'll never know it all. It's it's also like little Dunning Kruger effects all over the place, mm-hmm. right? Where yeah. and 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 there are many ways to describe this. I think your your train your gut metaphor. I like this because I, I'm not saying um, okay. Let let me phrase this in maybe a shorter one. You have to trust your gut, but you don't. You shouldn't trust your gut to be right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you 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 should never stop doubting your capacity to be right eventually. Because the moment you stop trusting your gut and only listen to other people, the, that's the moment you lose your original thought. Mm. And the moment you overtrust what you think is when you stop learning. Because, you, you know, like when you when you don't hear, you become ignorant when you don't listen to other mm-hmm. people. So your, your gut is a pretty good indicator, but it's it's not truth. It's not an organ of truth. It's not a source of truth. It's a source of, source of experience distilled into decisions it's a thinking fast thinking slow kind of thing right you you have so much experience in a field that you can quickly make a an educated guess but that's that's the phrase right your gut is good when it's an educated gut guess mm. and not an uneducated gut guess so you need this this certain experience exposure to the field exposure to other people's opinions and pretty much your own anecdotal evidence for your gut to become right i really like this thank you for for um phrasing it in, in, in such a clear way, because obviously trusting your gut is important at some stage and making these choices will become easier and more reliable, but you shouldn't trust it to be right, particularly not mm. at the start. Like you have an intuition, but that can just, where does it come from, right? Because that, that's that's one of those weird things about, about me being an East German. Here comes another story. So I, I grew up in East Germany. I was was born in the in the East, a country that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, pretty close to my hometown of Dresden in, in Germany, there's a town called Radebeul. And in there lived a person called Karl May. And Karl May wrote stories about Native Americans. Here's a dude from East Germany who never left East Germany telling stories about like the Apache Indians and cowboys in the West. 
It just I'm actually so sorry to interrupt, but I'm 95% certain that my dad, who didn't grow up in East Germany but in Bulgaria behind the Iron Curtain, actually loved him yeah. as an author and read yes. all his books. So that's funny. That's that's the thing. Like uh, everything, like from East Germany went eastwards, and everything yeah, yeah, yeah. from West Germany went westwards. Yeah, I, I remember a, a lot of um, uh, Volkov stories too. Like um, remember, like the the Emerald City or something. Hmm. He probably he would probably know that, that yeah. too. Yeah, that's that is kind of the um the what is the Wizard of Oz the the, the Russian origin version of that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting dichotomy in literature, but yes, he wrote it at a time you know um probably prior to the the Iron Curtain or something. But it's still these are stories about something he had no idea about, just from hearsay and envisioning it. So that is how I learned what Native Americans are and how how they interact and what does the whole culture of um the the gold rush and pioneers was about like obviously it wasn't true and obviously it was so wildly false that being now living here being exposed to the actual cultural remnants of these societies and the the surviving members of those tribes and and peoples (laughs) <laughs> that took a lot of, you know, changing my childhood memories. So my intuition about what I would expect was, okay, there's going to be a teepee and some dude on the horse, you know, like obviously that, that's not how it is. And I, I feel that my intuition was colored by my experiences that came from a source that I did not know not to trust. Mm. And in many ways, you have that in business too. Like there are many people out there writing business literature that is probably okay if you know almost as much as they do. That is probably instructive when you come from a certain perspective or when you look at a certain industry in a certain way. But if you have no idea what the business world is about, what building a software business is about, because you just learned how to code, and you you read a, a book by somebody who requires you to have 20 years of knowledge about software to understand the nuance of what they try to teach you. And if you don't understand it, you're going to make mistakes that are going to hunt you and hurt you for years. Well, that's not good advice, right? And that's not, you, you don't have the capacity to judge, is this good advice or isn't it? And I think that's that's one of the most basic problems with advice. Advice without context is dangerous. Advice mm-hmm. without knowing who is advising me and what is their, again, agenda, what are their uh, why are they sharing this for what reason and who are they sharing this for if you have no capacity of understanding this and that that's just because you don't have any prior experience then you might make wildly wrong decisions in choosing who to listen to or who to follow you know i often and i'm sorry for t- going on yet another tangent but no this is perfect. i want to <laughs> i yeah, want to this and is I what the show is all about yeah <laughs> well you know like there's a lot of people in the in the founder community in the indie hacker community who really love what elon musk has to say who really love what steve jobs have to say has to say like they they, they pick and choose their idols and there's nothing wrong with either elon or or um and any person in that space, right? Steve Jobs is great. And without Steve Jobs' work, I wouldn't be sitting in front of this wonderful MacBook Air or something that I have here that I'm talking into right now. It's awesome. Um, but taking every single piece of advice that this man who led a now trillion dollar business and had like hundreds of employees and then turning it onto your little software as a service site project where you're building a little Ruby on Rails project as a solopreneur, that's not going to help you. 
like you can idolize the founder. You can idolize the, the person that gave us all this wonderful technology and made the world's most um, valuable company happen. But you have to recontextualize their advice. It's mm -hmm. not going to help you as much as you think. Like he li lived an awesome life and it's uh, sad that he had to go the way he did. And for Elon Musk, it's the same. Like he, ha he is uh, he's Iron Man, right? In, in, in many ways. But he leads a company that is wildly different from anything that you will ever build. So his business advice might not be applicable to what you're building. I would yeah. always suggest for anybody who's looking at advice, and I'm going to come to an end on this topic now, to look for advice with the peers that are doing what you want to do. If you want to build a SaaS business, look at successful SaaS founders that have a business that like you want to have it a couple years from now and listen to what they have to say. Don't look at the people like, who have built this for the last 20 years and now have a like a 20, 30, 40 million dollar a month business. Look at the people who have one that has like $20,000 a month and how they got there and what they have to teach you. Like always look slightly ahead of you. And and that that's the, the best advice that I can give on this, which again, you should take with a grain of salt because who am I to talk, to talk to you about this, right? But you know, like advice is always contextual. So try to find as much similarity with the people giving it as you can. Yeah, I really like this concept of like recontextualizing advice because I feel like there is a, and, and to, this is borrowing like a Seth Godin term, like there's like a linchpin moment because yeah. sometimes you can, you can read everything about like email marketing, for example, and then something happens. Like maybe you read like uh, two sentences of like the 50th book and all of a sudden there's this like light bulb moment and everything yeah. connects or Maybe it happens like when you've read a whole bunch and then you go out there and you do it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, like that's where this comes in. And, and like, that's why this is so important is because I feel like you can't just do what other people tell you to do. If you haven't had this sort of linchpin moment where, you know, in, in the book, Seth Godin talks about it being a person, like be the linchpin in, in, in a company without whom nothing can happen. But there are these like linchpin ideas that will kind of like make things like like really like shine a light on how that works and and you know it can be a different idea it can be a different book for different people but there's i've noticed that there's usually this sort of moment of like oh like this makes sense now and this was actually described to me when i started learning how to code which i never ended up becoming a developer but this was the thing where i worked with like mentors and they would say like you know you're gonna like bang your head against the wall for four months and nothing's gonna make sense and you're going to feel like an idiot. And then you're going to have this one moment where just it all clicks together. And that's kind of like how it was described to me. And I think it's the same with business. It's like you're going to bang your head against the wall, but you're going to have this moment where kind of things click together eventually. Yeah, there's there's no immediate payback when it comes to learning something new as well, right? There's kind of, mm -hmm. um, I, I find that too. I, I have this concept for myself that I call the opportunity surface. It's like I'm, I'm trying to just imagine like an umbrella but instead of repelling rain, I'm trying to catch it, right? I'm trying to increase the size of the umbrella. So the more drops come down, the more I can actually catch them on the surface of my umbrella. Mm -hmm. And I, instead of rain, it's opportunities. The bigger the, the umbrella, the more opportunities strike the umbrella. And I still have to go to the opportunity and make it happen. It's not that stuff just comes to me automatically, but the more people I can reach, that's, that's why I'm building an audience on Twitter, right? I'm at like 50... 
5,000 people? I don't really know even because I don't track it too much. But I, a lot of people that follow me on Twitter. I do this. I actively built an audience on Twitter because I know that the more people I get to reach, the higher there's a chance that if I have, if I need something, people can help me get it. Or if I need to talk to one specific person with one specific skill set, the more people I know, the higher the chance that they know somebody who knows those people that I need to talk to. Right? If I needed an M&A lawyer because I'm selling a company, I would just write a tweet and I bet 30 minutes later I'd be on the phone with the M&A lawyer that has helped a couple other founders that follow me before because that's the network that I'm building. And that's the opportunity surface that I'm creating around myself. And it's not just people. It's also skills that I have, technologies that I understand. Coding, for example, is one of them. Right? I can, I can code my own websites. I can code my own software products because that's what I did professionally for a decade. But now I'm also a writer, so I can write stuff. I'm a podcaster. I can talk into a microphone for an hour and not get hoarse and still sound like I'm enjoying it. Or I, I do video because I, I made a Twitter course and I had to teach myself how to make a course. So I had all these lights and stuff set up and had to understand how to make like approachable video. And I needed to learn how to do green screen and I needed to learn how to do subtitles. And you know, all these little things add up to a repertoire of where either I could solve my own problems better or I know exactly who can solve them for me or I know at least who I can talk to to figure out how to figure something out. And that mm. is how I understand everything in life as a, a potential for future success. The, the one thing you need to know for this to, to happen is that if you can defer the payback, if you can defer gratification, then it's going to work for you. If you think you need to do a thing and immediately see it pay back or, or you stop, then you're going to have a problem. It's, it's the, the cumulative, um, what is it called? Um, cumulative growth or just cumulative compounding effect, right? That's what it is. Like you, mm -hmm. the, you, every, everything you do over time compounds. You start out, you do one thing today, one thing tomorrow, one thing the day after, and then maybe um, a person starts interacting with you because you're starting, and if you want to start on Twitter, that's the example, right? You want to start on Twitter, you have zero followers, you create your account, you write a nice bio, you take a picture, you put it there, and you, you start engaging with people, you engage with one person today, nothing happens. You engage with one person tomorrow, they may have a little conversation with you. Third day, again, you engage, nothing happens. Fourth day, you engage, somebody talks to you, and maybe there's a second person now. And then the fifth day, but maybe there's three people. And then two weeks from now, you probably have 150 followers who regularly engage with you. Just because the compounding effect looks like this little exponential curve. In the beginning, there isn't much, but over time, it just shoots up. And you can reliably see this in anything you put your mind to. Coding, same same exact thing, right? You start learning, you learn what a what a what an if then statement is. You think, okay, that makes sense. You learn what a for loop is. Okay, that makes sense. I guess still don't really know how to use it and uh, to to map the solution to of a problem to the code, but you understand the basics, and then you write your first little things, and then you over time you understand it, and then there's that moment where the the graph goes up because it just unlocks the capacity to map the solution of a problem to the skill set that you currently have. And it takes a long time to get there. But once you're there, nobody can ever take it away from you. Just, it's, it's such a wonderful thing, right? You, with coding, it's, it's the same with writing. Like once you understand how to outline a blog post and how to turn that outline into paragraphs and turn the paragraphs into sections and then you're done, once you, you this clicks, and that's how I write, you could give me any topic and a week from now, I would have a pretty useful article on this issue 
because I now know the tools to get there. I know how to research mm -hmm. right. I know how to outline, how to brainstorm. I've taught myself these things. Took me a while to do it right, but I know it now and I can. I don't think I can ever unlearn it because it's just part of my, my skill set, my tool set. That's, yeah, it's kind of the value of that. Yeah, I and I think you know this make this makes me think about Naval. Um, if, I don't know how familiar you are with Naval, but you know he has this idea of like the four different types of leverage, right? And you have mm -hmm. labor, you have capital, uh, you have code, and you have media. And like one of the things that I think he is missing on this, and this is pretty scary for me to say and correct Naval, but I think he's missing a fifth one which is audience, right? Because there's definitely, like you said, like if, if you need a lawyer, you can use your audience to kind of find that. You know, there's so many of these creators now who are using their audience as a leverage to actually cooperate with, with brands or co-create something. You know, The Rock has like the best selling sneaker collection for Under Armour because he has this audience that he's built up that he can use to leverage. And I think that that is a really powerful tool and something to really yeah. focus on in our current economy. And I do believe, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this because, you know, The Rock is a great example that we can all understand because he's got millions and millions of followers. But you have this idea of the monopoly, mm -hmm. which I want to explore a little bit because I think that's a really cool term. But can you describe what a monopoly is? And why should anybody who is trying to become a monopoly why should they have a Twitter? Why is investing in Twitter a good idea in that scenario? Right. So um, imagine um, you're you are the Rock, but you're not the Rock, the the person that everybody knows. You are the Rock in your tiny community of people who really like to paint fantasy wargaming miniatures. Like mm. there's this whole community of of, of Warhammer. Is painting. that what it's called? That's well, that's exactly what I it is. just <laughs> found out about it like three weeks ago, and I was like, "What is this? I love this. this is incredible." Well, if if you're interested in it, I can go here and like show you my my latest little <laughs> miniature. But no, but the the idea of of min miniature painting is it's a nice little hobby because it combines gaming with um crafts essentially right mm -hmm. you have these little miniatures you paint them and then you play games with them it's quite enjoyable it's a nice solipsistic uh, hobby you do it by yourself like you you don't usually paint in groups but the game happens in groups so it's a social hobby but it's also an isolation hobby wonderful for a pandemic i can only recommend it and it's nice for hand-eye coordination too it's fun sure. it's just a fun thing to do and particularly um in a situation that i'm in right now where i can do essentially what i want because you sold the business and i have my little media empire that requires me to do one thing a week because that's the schedule that i've set up for myself i have a couple days left in the week and there's a lot of miniature painting and little fidgeting but yes the idea is if you are in a community like like this of people who have a very specific niche interest and that can be miniatures that can be a particular kind of reading a particular kind of author that you're a fan of if you like fantasy books you're a fan of brandon sanderson's books like the, the mistborn series or something that is a niche community and in that community there are people who have more reputation than others and there are in some communities there exist people who have a lot of reputation so much so that they have a certain kind of control over the narrative in the community, the topics that people talk about, what products people use, they are influencers. 
And that mm-hmm. is not the kind of influencers taking a selfie on the beach kind of person. That's a person that is actually benefiting their community. And I'm trying to say this without any spite, but you know, there's a difference between influencers who do this only for the exposure and mm-hmm. the kind of um, the deals, the sponsorship deals. Uh, doesn't mean that sponsorship in, in itself is wrong. It's just like, yeah, who are you sponsored by and who are these people selling to? You should wonder about that if you are one of these gigantic influencers. But you, you can be an influential person in a niche community that is a benefit to that community, yeah, that, that your role as that influencer. You see this in the indie hacker community. If you look at Peter Levels, right, who's mm-hmm. building all these amazing products that are true indie hacker products, like a single file PHP products, you know, like the, the whole story about him becoming one of the early um, remote indie hackers, right? The, the, the indication uh, independent indie hackers. And he's been vocal about this. He's been vocal to his audience. He's been vocal about products, vocal about issues in the space, issues in um, the, the industries that he's working in. It's really nice. He has, I think, an audience of 200,000 people which compared that to The Rock is nothing. Like th- there is probably a couple thousand Peter levels that need to b- combine their audiences before they even get to a fraction of The Rock. But it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter because Peter Levels is a name that if you talk about indie hackers or a- about digital like, nomads or yeah. digital nomads, everybody knows. And if mm-hmm. Peter releases a new thing, you can be pretty sure that everybody's going to look at it. So that is what a monopoly, monop, monopoly is. Sorry, like the, the name is even hard for me and I, I came up with it. But the idea is to have a little, um, yeah, a, a credibility, a reputation, a knowledge monopoly within a tinier, smaller niche that has a very homogenous audience that where everybody has, like like in a tribe, right? That's another mm-hmm. Seth Godin book. If you read Tribes, where he talks about tribe being a group that is defined by everybody has the same interest, everybody knows each other, and there's a hierarchy in, in the group, right? That is what a tribe is. And that is exactly what niche audiences are and what niche communities are. And Peter Levels, high in the hierarchy, everybody knows him. He knows lots of people in the community. And he's talking about the same stuff that everybody's talking about. Perfect example yeah. of a monopoly. And you can be that in any community. You could be this for the software engineering community. You could be this for the Ruby on Rails um, software engineer community. You could be this for the Ruby on Rails plugin writing community, or you could be this for the software businesses based on Ruby on Rails gem plugins uh, community. Like all these things have a community. The more you go into the niche, the smaller they get, but they also get more specific. And if you build something for that particular market, being specific is a good thing. So having uh, a thought, a credibility, a reputation, monopoly within a small niche community gives you a lot of opportunity and people trust you because you, you're you not just in there talking about your project, right? You're in there actually helping people be better at what they want to do because with everybody talking about the same issues, questions come up all the time. And if you're reputable and if you're smart, and if you're helpful and kind, which you should be because that's just basic human decency, then you can help people get better at what they want to get better at. And they will start trusting you, recommending you to their peers. They will start highlighting you and amplifying your message, growing your audience by bringing more people towards you. This is like a, a, a net, net, net win, right? Because you do something nice for them. You do it in public. Other people see it. They got something out of it. You get a reputation boost. Everybody is happy. And that's how monopolies are built. 
by just relentlessly showing up and helping people become better versions of themselves. And eventually, through the effect of reciprocity, because people eventually want to help you get give back if you've given them so much before, you will benefit from that. And that's why I think monopolies are great. Also, they don't have to be monopolistic. Like you don't have to be the only person. There's enough right, space yeah. for multiple monopolies in any given. Like monopoly is really just about like the the expedited kind of or the, the higher exposure of of the the person in the community. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to kind of Peter Thiel style stump on everybody and and try to. You shouldn't like be the tide that lifts all the votes because a community where everybody benefits is an expansive net benefit um, and positive sum community. You might want to have that because that will increase your brand even more. But yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that's actually something we, uh, I just had a conversation with this with some friends who are also online entrepreneurs and, and digital nomads last night at dinner was this idea of um, a rising tide lifts all boats versus uh, this old business idea of competition. And like we were talking about how perhaps the reason why we, like I don't know anyone in the online business world who doesn't believe in this idea of a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think it's because as online entrepreneurs, as people who build our businesses online, there is just so much opportunity. There are yeah. so many people. The 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 amount of potential customers is so big that we don't need to fight amongst them. But yeah. if you look at this in the like eighties, for example, and the only way to have a business was to like really have like you know an air conditioning service business in our little town. Yeah. You bet yeah, we're going to no be competitors cool. if you have another one, right? But when you're building online, yeah. there's like there's just no reason. There's no reason why we yeah. should spend our energy, uh, you know, fighting amongst each other. Uh, and I love this yeah. idea of a, of a monopoly because like sometimes the, the way that I've talked about it is no one really wants to be famous. Like people think they want to be famous, but then like you can't walk down the street. You can't do anything, right? But the internet allows you to be very famous for like a thousand select people, right? Where like yeah. maybe you go to a specific conference where everyone knows you. And that's kind of the goal because you get the best of both worlds in that way. That's right. Sort of in wrapping yeah. up because I know we're running out of time and I really I want to be respectful of your time, but I can't really let you go unless we get some, you know, tips on how to grow our Twitter audience, because okay. this is something that I've recognized recently in terms of social media is I've been an Instagram user for a very, very long time. I like Instagram. I've met some really awesome people through that platform, but I've recently become more interested in Twitter. I've really started looking at the audience. there. have really started looking at the people who are on Twitter. Uh, and I, I've taken your course, by the way, I highly recommend anybody check for everybody to check that out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, but, um, Twitter, for whatever reason, I feel like the level of conversation is like one or two steps over what I'm finding elsewhere online. So how can people grow their Twitter audience uh, if that's something they're interested in? Like, what are your best tips for that? So Twitter is, uh, thank you, by the way, for um, talking about taking my course. I'm really happy you did. And I'm, I'm glad that it uh, gave you some insight. And I'm just going to like take the, the main bullet points here because that's why the course mm -hmm. exists. So I teach teach what I know. Um, Twitter is, a, is an, an amplification platform. It's not really a content network, right? It's not like you know, people are writing like blog posts or essays on Twitter. Twitter is a conversation that never stops. 
And depending on who you're listening to will dictate what kind of topics come up. So the, the first thing that if you want to build an audience on Twitter is becoming a part of the audience of other people. Because you need to surround yourself with the right people to 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 be uh, in, in conversations with or to be engage engaging with as well for you to start being able to collect your own followers on the platform. The, the reason for this is Twitter is essentially, you can read everybody's tweet, right? You can, you can go on Twitter and you can read The Rock streets if you wanted to. If you follow The Rock and all these celebrities, you will see a lot of highly engaged tweets that talk about all kinds of things which is great if you use Twitter casually or just for like recreational purposes. But if you want to build a brand, if you want to build a business, either a content business or the software business or an e-commerce business, whatever, and you want to use Twitter professionally, like as a, both a distribution channel and a learning channel and a channel to communicate with your peers, with other people in your founder space, you should stop following the wrong people and start following the right people. That means, unfortunately, you might not want to follow The Rock as one of his 17 million followers or whatever. I think Barack Obama or Justin Bieber have like the highest follower count on Twitter, which is also talking or saying a lot about the society. <laughs> but, you know, like the idea is on Twitter, you if you want to get a good following of people that are interesting and interested in what you have to say, then you need to first follow people you find interesting that you might want to be part of your community, your Twitter audience in, in the end. So you start by following a couple people. There are many ways to follow them. You, you either you find them somewhere else, you go to podcasts and you listen to people you want to actually see more of and you get their Twitter handle, start following them. You check out what lists they're on. Twitter has lists. So you can find out people pre-select certain people into lists and then you can follow the list. You get a whole bunch of people. doesn't matter. A couple hundred people that are interesting, you start following them. And then you you don't tweet. Like that is the biggest thing that I can tell people. Don't start tweeting random stuff. Focus on what you really want to talk about professionally and don't start just tweeting it out, like going to Twitter, tweeting, sending tweet, and then hoping for people to engage with it. Forget that for now. If you're starting, engage. Go to an ongoing conversation where people are already tweeting, where they're already discussing something and contribute meaningfully and helpfully to that conversation. Don't just write something and yell it into the void. Like imagine you have like three followers. You tweet something out. The thing you tweet is only going to be seen by a maximum of three people and you're competing with The Rock. So, you know, they might not engage with your little thoughtful tweet if they have other interesting things to see. But if you are in a conversation, if you reply, comment on an ongoing Twitter conversation where people are already talking, like, I don't know, somebody's talking about pricing for their business and then somebody goes in and says, well, have you tried maybe charging this much? And you as a founder have experience with this and you say, well, I tried this last year. Here are the numbers. Something which helps, which helps the conversation. And if you do that, not only do are you saying something much more meaningful than that initial tweet that goes out into nowhere, into the void, but you're actually showing that you're interested in helping people. You're not just saying something into oblivion. You're in a conversation where people need help and you're showing up. And that resonates with people. They might start actually looking at your profile. And if you have a good Twitter bio and have a good picture and have a good name and if you have good links, all of that essentially is in the course. I don't want to sound too markety here, but you know, like there are a lot of steps to make it right because it's a funnel, right? People find you, they look at you and maybe they follow mm -hmm. you and 
along every step of the way, they might not. So you can optimize for conversion along that funnel. But if you do that right, you have a follower. And now you still only do engagement. You still keep engaging. And now that follower sees you engage, maybe they engage. Maybe just by you engaging, you got them to help somebody else. Wonderful. Somebody else sees that, they follow you. You do this, you keep doing this day by day, and you start growing your own little following, collecting people around you that find you interesting. And then over time, you can start giving your own thoughts as a tweet into the potential of Twitter. So people might start discussing it, might start replying to it and stuff. And I still, to this day, with 55,000 followers, mostly reply and retweet other people's content because I'm, I'm more focused on engagement and empowerment, helping people get more views, helping people get more reach and more conversations started. Then I want to actually put more new content onto Twitter. That's for other people too. Mm. It's like 50-50, right? Empowerment, engagement, and then maybe, um, or maybe, what is it? 40, 40, 20, something like that. 20% of what I do is original. And the other things are just community-based actions. And that is what Twitter people really resonate with. You being there for the community, interacting with the community, helping people get more resonance, help inviting other people into the conversation. Treat Twitter like a networking tool, like an empowerment tool, an engagement tool. And you're going to be much faster to whatever follower goal you might have than if you just tweet, 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 and nobody reads it. Yeah, I mean, you don't even have to have the biggest Twitter audience in the world. Like you have over 50,000 uh, followers. That's fantastic. But you don't even have to have that many to use it as a very successful business building tool. We had Alice LeMay on the uh, on the mm. podcast, Elise LeMay on the podcast. Uh, and I don't know how many Twitter followers she has. Like maybe let's say like 15,000, for example. Sorry if I'm undercutting yeah. her if she's listening to this. But she has built a great business, a great yeah. copywriting and, and content creation business completely off of that uh, 16,000 yeah. followers. And she didn't even have 16,000 followers yeah. when she started profiting from it. She had maybe a couple thousand. So if you're very specific, like you said about the conversations that you're having, the people you're interacting with, you don't need that much of an audience yeah. to really use it to build a business. And I want to yeah. ask you about uh, something a bit more specific about Twitter because someone on uh, Twitter who I reached out to, and I'm not going to say their name, and I asked them, hey, what sort of tips do you have there in our community? They're in, you know, so it's kind of like a relatively same community. And I asked them like, hey, like, what is your number one tip for building an audience? And they said, honestly, I once they established sort of like an understanding of the audience and the space and started putting out some of their own original content, they said, I just started spending on ads to push my best tweets and my audience grew like crazy. What is your thought on this? Because I've seen some people on Twitter that kind of say things like, if I see that it's a promoted tweet, I'm not interested, I won't even look at it versus like kind of using this as a strategy. What is your personal opinion on that? It, yeah, here's the thing about audiences. Like every every brand or every person that is building an audience is doing that for one particular kind of audience, right? You could you could be a software engineer trying to gather senior software engineers around you, and I would wager that those people might not resonate well with paid ads. They might mm. really not like it because from a technical perspective, they might have reservations about the, the privacy behind ads and whatever. There are reasons for this audience to maybe not like it. But if you're building an audience, I don't know, in, in a particular sport or in a, in a particular like entertainment um, 
industry kind of specific niche, they might not care. For them, ads are a regular part of their day-to-day. They might see it and say, hey, cool, yeah, sponsored. Well, it doesn't matter. Like, the content is great. I'm entertained. I'm instructed or whatever. It very much depends on who you want to attract. And that is true for everything you do on Twitter. Like I said earlier, like, you have to follow the people that are kind of like the people you want to attract so you can get into the conversations where the people you want to attract are participating. And the same goes mm-hmm. for paid ads or it goes for collaborations or it goes for giveaways or whatever it is. The kind of people that you will attract um, should match the people you want to attract. And if the thing you do does like, is, is only attracting the wrong kind of people, well, then don't do the thing. It's really good. I can tell. Giveaways is an example of this. There are some communities where giveaways are perfectly fine. And a lot of people um, participate and somebody wins and everybody's happy. And the other people don't really care. But in the in the founder community, it's a, it's a two-edged sword, right? You do a giveaway and then a lot of people who only want stuff for free join your audience. If you're mm. somebody who wants to sell a product, but you attract people who only want free stuff, you know, there's a divergence of what you want and what you're doing. So maybe you should not do giveaways. Maybe you should do partnerships or discounts or something. But there's always the right thing and the wrong thing to do to attract the right or the wrong people. And you have to be the judge of that. And that's an experience thing. You have to go with your gut after you get some experience. Gotcha. Well, thank you, uh, Arvin, for coming on. Uh, This has been such a a fun conversation. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And in wrapping up, I have to ask you one last question because I think I'll get crucified by my audience if I don't because you mentioned this kind of in passing. Uh, You mentioned that you only do one thing per week now, like that that's kind of your schedule. Uh, And I think a lot of people listening to this, that's something that they would aspire to, right? Is to have the the sort of business that allows them to do focus only one thing, have a lot more time Mm -hmm. for travel, their family, hobbies. Can you just speak very uh, quickly on... Like, how have you created that in terms of like, what does that mean? You only do one mm-hmm. thing per week. Yeah. So when we sold the business, I, I, we kind of both, Danielle and I fell into this void of what are we going to do next? Because you sell a business that you were 24 seven in and now all of a sudden it's gone. And I, I found I, ne- I needed to write. I had all this knowledge mm-hmm. accumulated for many years of, of running the thing and I wanted to share it. So I started the blog and uh, I, I wrote a couple of articles, wrote a lot of articles. I think I wrote 10 articles within two weeks or so because I had so much to talk about and that wasn't even a fraction of all the topics I wanted to get to. And then I released them and I thought, hmm, if this is ever going to grow into something meaningful, I need to set a cadence, I need to set a schedule and I, I need to set up an accountability system. And I thought, what's the cadence that I would be comfortable with now that I have this life where I can do whatever I want? One weekly thing. I could have decided once every two weeks or once a day. Some people like Seth Godin do that, and I don't know how, but they do. But I thought one one thing a week, I'm going to write a blog post. And then I, I, I did that, and then I thought, hmm, I still don't feel accountable, so let's turn this into a newsletter. So I take my blog post every single week, and I send it out as a newsletter. Same content. And now that I had, at that point, newsletter subscribers, I felt compelled to every week produce that newsletter. So to be able to have a newsletter, I need to write my article. So I need to come up with a topic and I need to write a 1,000 to 2,000 word article on this because people expect that. And then somebody told me, I don't like reading. And, and then somebody else told me, well, I have trouble reading. 
uh, can, can you create a podcast or something? And I said, well, I got that time. So now I'm writing my article, I'm copying it into my newsletter, and I'm narrating the script into my microphone right here mm-hmm. every week. So I only write one thing, and then I spend two hours narrating it and putting it into all those different web forms that I need to put it in to go out to my audience. And that's it. Obviously, I think about it all week and I take outlines and notes and stuff. And I have a a whole notion document full of ideas for the next four years or something. But that's all I do. I really let it fester in my mind so I can come up with all the kind of thoughts that I want to write about. Then on Monday or Tuesday, I write on on Wednesday, I I check that I have everything in place. And on Thursday, I record and schedule it all for Friday. But that's really wow. one major thing. It comes in multiple parts, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of time in between. I can tell you that. I've been watching Star Trek Voyager, the full <laughs> seven seasons, quite a few times over the last couple of months because I love it. You know, like it's just, that's what I do. And it's enough. It gets people engaged on a weekly basis. And um, it allows me once a week to market my book, to market my course in all three mediums. And I talk about all kinds of things on Twitter in between. And I collect new topics that I put on the list to eventually write about. So it's a gigantic flywheel for me. I love that. Well, Arvid, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been uh, a ton of fun. And, and, you know, finally, let people know where can they find you on Twitter. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Twitter. And then also, where can people find your book and, and your courses? So thank you. Uh, on Twitter, you could find me at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You're probably going to put a link in the show mm-hmm. notes for this. But yeah, yeah, you're probably not going to not find me on Twitter because I'm there all the time. <laughs> right? you, you won't be able to avoid me in the indie hackerspace. And I have a blog called The Bootstrap Founder, um, thebootstrapfounder.com, and my book, Zero to Sold, Embedded Entrepreneur. Both of them are there. And Find Your Following, which is my Twitter course, you'll find there as well. But hey, follow me on Twitter if you like. Look at my stuff on Twitter. Make your own Sound judgment if you want to follow me or not, but um, I would love to. And if you don't want to follow me and just message me, that's also fine. My DM, my DMs are open on Twitter. So if you have a business question or writing question or an audience building question, just throw it at me and I'll respond because that's that's what I like and that's what I want to do. So I'll do it. <laughs> so there you go. Perfect. Well, Arvid, thank you uh, again so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Mitko. That was really nice. 